0: Hello fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host Steve Dawson coming to you from the Henhouse Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast bring in a slew of folks who've also made records, in one way or another, and yak about it with them. Each month I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for tuning in this bi-weekly event. This is season four, and we're on episode 94 now, this week, with my guest Tucker Martin, which is very exciting. I've been trying to get Tucker on for quite some time. So before we get started, I'd like to mention the show's sponsors. We have, from Vancouver, BC, two companies. Union Tube & Transistor, as always. Making awesome crazy pedals and Black Mountain Picks making very interesting spring loaded thumb picks. Also recommended. Thank you to both of those companies. We really appreciate the support. Um, I'd like to mention also we have a Facebook page, of course, and Instagram. The Instagram page is at Makers and Shakers Podcast. And there's also a fairly new website, it's been up for a month or so and that's at um, makersandshakerspodcast.com. So you can go there and get the scoop on all the past episodes and what's going on, and you can also buy t-shirts and whatnot. So check that out. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from. That's always great, and I could really use your help uh, with some reviews, particularly on Apple Podcasts if you are a listener there. And you dig the show, just give it a good old review and even chime in with a sentence or two review. Those things really help out the cause. And that would be much appreciated. And as I always mention, this show is essentially listener supported. And if you're able to contribute in some way financially, we can always use your help to keep things going with all the overhead involved in a show like this. You can do that through a monthly Patreon subscription or a one-time donation. Both are very easy to do through the website makersandshakerspodcast.com. Uh, in the top right corner, there is a donate button. And that link takes you to a page where you can subscribe to Patreon or, or do a one-time donation. So check that out if you feel so inclined. Uh, I should mention too, if you're a Patreon subscriber, you get access to a fun little bi-weekly video series that I put up uh, where i pull up some tracks from a record that I made and talk about it. And it's proving to be entertaining for me and apparently somewhat entertaining for other people. So uh, that is just one little perk of being a Patreon subscriber, which can be for as little as a couple bucks a month. I would like to thank some of the people over the last couple of weeks that have donated and contributed. They are Duncan Martin, Gary Anwill, Mike Sadava. I think that's how you say your name, Mike Sadava. Gerald Bailey and Boom Baker. I like that name, Boom. That's cool. Uh, I should also mention Mike Sadova is the winner of the Black Mountain Thumb Picks this week. You'll get a couple of those mailed out to you. And every week we give away a couple of Black Mountain Thumb Picks. All you have to do to be entered for that contest is go onto the Facebook page and leave a comment on this episode's post. So it's the post that is promoting the release of this episode with Tucker Martin. Leave a comment there and you will be entered for Black Mountain Thumbpicks. Uh, and I put a post on there this week too, inviting listeners to put links up to uh, some of the music that they're creating. And I really enjoyed hearing from a bunch of people and got some cool links and some cool music. So I don't know what the best way to do that is. I would like to encourage some more of that, but I don't know if you can just randomly post links onto the make Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast Facebook page. But maybe you can. I don't really know. What's the best way to do that? Maybe somebody can tell me. I know a lot of the people that, that were able to do it did it through um, commenting on the post where I asked people to do that. So all those comments came in in the form of links and that seemed to work really well. So maybe there's another more elegant way to do that. But I would like to encourage the sharing of links of all this great music that people are creating in this time when a lot of people are experimenting with recording for the first time and also, you know, doing some crazier stuff maybe than they normally do. So, let's uh let's check all that out and let's listen to each other's music as well and comment on that cuz that's pretty cool. I like to give some music recommendations. I'm going to do that quickly. I should mention that I'm actually not at home right now. So again, I'm not going to play any callers this week. Uh, There were a few, and I appreciate that. But if you do want to call in and leave a message about the show, you also will be entered into the pick giveaway. And uh, I usually play some listeners' comments on the show, either comments or, uh, as we've been doing on this season, talking about what you've been up to during the lockdown and what sort of creative things you've been doing, maybe some ideas or, or even some technical information you can pass along. All that stuff is cool. Anyway, so if you would like to call in, please feel free to do that. The number to call is 615-375-6318 and leave your name and tell us what you're up to during the lockdown. Even though we're not locked down anymore, we probably should be, but people are still sticking close to home and being creative and we'd love to hear about it. So you can do it through that phone number or you can email me at steve at studio.com. And I've been giving music recommendations. And uh yeah, I don't know. I always listen to a ton of stuff. This week I would like to recommend the there's a brand new David Grissom record. He's a killer guitar player. I first knew about him through playing with um who the hell was it that he played with? John Cougar? Yeah. So he was John Cougar's guitar player back in the nineties or eighties, probably. But he's a monster. Monster player, and uh, I've almost had him on the show a couple times, but it just hasn't happened. Anyway, he has a new live record that's really cool. It's called the Dave Grissom Trio Live. And um, the other one, I like to recommend an oldie. And, you know, I wanted to... Somewhere on another podcast that I was listening to, somebody was talking about Pink Floyd. And, you know, I've listened to Pink Floyd a bunch, and I dig it, you know, but I have not really listened to that band um, closely in a long time, so I decided to dive back in, and I didn't want to check out the all the main ones because I, you know, I'd OD'd on them in grade nine. But um, metal, that's a good one, you know, and I always liked that record, but I had not listened to, the, I hadn't cranked that one on in probably twenty years, and uh, it's aged well. That's a cool sounding record. It's really strange, and there's some interesting songs on there, and the Sonics are pretty experimental for the time. And, uh, yeah, you know, if you need a little Floyd in your life, check out metal. That's not one that people go back to metal and animals were always my favorite. Those, those two, I'm going to go back and I haven't listened to animals in a long time either, but maybe I'll check that out this week. Okay. So this week's guest is Tucker Martine. Tucker lives in Portland, although he originally was from Nashville. He grew up here in Nashville. His dad was a songwriter and we're going to talk about that. So I'm not going to tell you too much right now. Uh, I've tried to get Tucker on the show a few times and we've talked about doing it, but he's always been super busy and then I've been busy when he's had a bit of time and whatever. So it just never worked out. But uh, he got back to me a, a couple weeks ago or a month or two ago or whatever and and said he's got some time. And uh, so we made it happen. And I'm really excited. I'm, I'm a big fan of what he does. He's a really interesting producer and engineer. He's got an incredible studio in Portland, which I haven't been to. It's a brand new facility called Flora Recording and Playback. He has a great website that has all the info on that. He started off his career basically in Seattle, and then he's had a couple of different locations of his studio in Portland. So I wanted to talk about the the new building and the new facility and how he went about building it and designing it, and we got into all that stuff. And Tucker has made a whole bunch of, incredible records in the last 10 years. He's engineered or recorded records or mixed records for Punch Brothers, Avett Brothers, Laura Veers, Nico Case, The Decemberists. lots of basically everything The Decemberists have done. My Morning Jacket, Brian Blade. He has this project with Matt Chamberlain and Bill Frizzell and Lee Townsend called Floritone where they kind of improvise. He records Frizzell and Matt Chamberlain improvising and then they go and chop it all up and they make a record out of it, and it's called Floratone. There's two of those, which are really cool. And then he's done a ton of Bill Frizzell's records. Lately, stuff like Guitar in the Space Age and Disfarmer and the Intercontinentals. I love all those records. And uh, so, yeah, I've, just, I've followed Tucker's career for a long time and always dug his aesthetic, and he's really into analog gear, and we kind of nerded out a little bit on that kind of stuff. And I'm thrilled that he could uh, be on the show. So, without... Further ado, here is my conversation with Tucker Martin. Enjoy.
1: Many recent interviews were sound like they're just, just probably the Zoom audio, which is fine. But what the heck? Yeah, I've got a recording studio what? here. Why not? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a—I
0: used to ask people to do that, but I—but I gave up when I realized that um, actually, surprisingly, few people were up for that task. Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> it's just like yeah.
1: one too many steps.
0: Well, thanks for doing this, man. It's been a it's been a while I've been trying to get you on this and I'm I'm glad you reached out and and um have time right now. I mean, I don't I don't know how much time you actually have, but it's it's great I, to have you on here. I'm
1: I'm good for a while. Um yeah, no, I'm so glad this is finally happening. I think we both we both have busy complicated schedules and um when the time was good for you, it seemed like things were too hectic for me and vice versa, but Yeah. Um yeah. But it's quarantine. It, it is. Seems man. like everyone's got got a little more time, <laughs> for better or worse.
0: Can we start off just talking a little bit about that? I, I, over the last few weeks, as I've been doing these during this whole period of time, I'm pretty interested to know, you know, what what people are doing, and and especially, you know, like how things have affected your business, you know, as a studio owner and as a producer and engineer, and whether it's been a horrific downturn or whether it's been a welcome time to hang out with your kids or what's what's your general uh take on all that
1: yeah well i it's it's been all of those things i mean i i had a bunch of records that were planned of bands to come from out of you know out of town out of out of yeah, country yeah. um all of that just i don't know if it got canceled or postponed honestly you know it's like the longer this goes on maybe the the higher the chances of of it just going away either because the artists have lost so much income that they can no longer afford to do this or, yeah. you know, they're just sitting around and everyone's teaching themselves to record themselves and everyone's making their, their self recorded record now or or what have you. So, um, you know, uh, it's, it's been a huge hit on my income and that's definitely been a, been stressful, but, um, but I've, I've always been so busy between work and family that, you know i've not had time for a lot of stuff that i that i want to do like more personal projects and not to mention just just like kind of studio maintenance and upgrades and stuff like that so um you know while my my true passion is making records and working with interesting creative people um there was a stretch where, where it was actually pretty nice to suddenly have a little time on my hands, but since the end isn't necessarily in sight, and it's, it's been going on a while, I'm I'm kind of getting over it soon here. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, and I, f- I really feel like we're basically the last industry that's going to make any sort of comeback, you know, like whether it's... Live music touring, like I, you know, I had tons of touring plans this fall, and that's gone, obviously, and right. But there's no indication of like wh- when is this gonna pick up. Like, it it really feels like unless there's a vaccine, while widely dispersed in the general public, that people just aren't gonna want to. You know, obviously they're gonna open bars and stuff, and there is gonna be live music, but I don't really mean it in that way. I mean it like in a touring kind of way like rather than like a local bar kind of situation as a touring musician it there's no end to this in sight and and that that's kind of horrifying and and also with the studio thing it's like there's there's no possible uh end end to this really because you're right like people have run out of money but also like a a lot of what we do relies on either you traveling to the person or the person coming to you and nobody's going to want to do
1: that I know. I mean, I did make, um, I got to make one record during this time. There's a woman in town who plays the harp and has all kinds of wild processing she does with it and sings and she, she and I had long talked about wanting to do something together, but time, timing was tricky and her budget was pretty small too. So it, was kind of hard for it to to get squozing in when i had some you know some good paying stuff my overhead's pretty high these days so Mm -hmm. you know i do have to prioritize that to some extent you know provided um that i'm also excited about it creatively but she's in town and it's just one person and so we managed to make her record um you know because she could come over and she's recording in the she's in the other space and you know, it just mm-hmm. wasn't difficult to do, and and still feel like we were being responsible and right. socially distant. But um, so like that was one of those 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 nice little things that appeared. Um, and that that was really rewarding creatively. But yeah, yeah. um, but I don't think there are any more of those <laughs> waiting the, waiting the, around the and far between. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I had three or four like full on record to produce this fall too that are that are gone so i i I feel you man
1: yeah i mean Um, and you know so many people are are hurting and taking a hit and in various ways and um we can't really feel sorry for ourselves either because we're not alone that's right
0: (laughs) yeah yeah it's literally everyone is in the same boat so there is that
1: i think probably it's probably gonna be there'll be an outpouring of creative work getting made people can finally make that that weird record they always wanted to make that didn't they didn't have time to make, totally. And, <laughs> um, and you know,
0: and there there will be, a, I believe, a wildly large resurgence of appreciation for what you do and what engineer like good producers <laughs> and engineers do because people are going to realize that they don't want to do that fucking stuff, you know, and, or they're no good at it. or right. it's not as easy as as just sticking a microphone into a USB connector in a computer and making a record,
1: right? <laughs> Well, you know, I, I hope you're right. You know, people are just kind of getting more and more used to to that way of working, and um, maybe yeah. fewer people are appreciating, you know, what it means to go and make a record with somebody who's dedicated their whole life to doing that and does it every single day and has a right. space designed and built, you know, precisely for that purpose. And Yeah. But, um, you know, I've been so lucky. I mean, up to this point, I've... Yeah, you know, I've had a really made a a go of it, and uh, it's a pretty fortunate position to be in to, to get yeah. you know have people want to make records with you and get to make a living doing it. So,
0: so maybe we could. I mean, there's quite a few wi- wildly different subjects I would love to talk to you about, but maybe we could start. Um, you mentioned having a high overhead and and um, and having a a dedicated space, and I know that you've moved Flora a couple of times. Um, but i'd i'd love to hear a little bit about the current space and you know maybe like what you've learned in your experiences for, from creating studio spaces things that that people wouldn't expect or whatever that you have you know first of all why you moved to the new space and then also like what sort of things that you learned in the process cuz i've done it a few times on a smaller scale than what you've done and i always like learn a million things every time i've done it
1: oh yeah for sure well, and I keep saying that this is the last the last studio that i'm I'm gonna make, you know like that this is yeah, it yeah. <laughs> but but you know we've been alive long enough to to know better than <laughs> to believe that but um, the main impetus of moving this last time was to buy you know, I always wanted to be in a space that I owned because a build out for a studio as you know probably a lot of your listeners know it if if, if you're going to really do it right and 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 go for it, it's it's very involved and um expensive and takes a lot of time and um you know to do all that for a space that you're renting which i've done before you know it's just hard because that's money you're you're not going to get back when you leave you're just leaving that for somebody else right and right. you're also at the mercy of of a landlord who you know in the case of my last studio he was perfectly nice guy but he was a developer and he was you know i could tell he was always just looking for a chance just waiting for the right offer and he was going to sell the, uh-huh. the whole block cuz he kind of he had all these buildings within a, a few blocks and he was always bringing like investors through to check out the spaces and stuff. You know? Oh, really? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. you're going to interrupt my session to sh- to show it to my studio to somebody that might buy the building and turn it into a Costco or something. But um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so this the space that I'm in now is a place that was about halfway between my house and my old studio, and I used to walk by it every day on my way to the to the other studio. And um, it's just, it's always been a building that that caught my attention. It's kind of mysterious, like nobody really knew what it was. But it's got a really interesting exterior with just all these kind of ornate details on the roof and these two black doors that are always closed. (laughs) and Like, you know, some windows up high, but you can't, couldn't really see in. One day I saw there was a little for sale sign on it and... I called just, you know, mostly just out of curiosity. I I was yeah. like I'm in no position to be looking at buying a place, but you know, you can't help but wonder, right? You just Yeah. When you see an interesting place like, "Well, what does a place like that go for?" So, it turned out that it was I mean, up until the up until the day before I got the keys, it was a motorcycle gang's clubhouse. Really? So, I mean, and they were
0: no wonder it was shrouded in mystery.
1: Yeah, exactly. They kept pretty, pretty low, a uh, pretty low profile for that reason, <laughs> um, and they entered through the back. There was a driveway in the back, so um, kind of all the coming and going was back there. But, um, so anyway, it just to make a long story not too long it it turned out to just be this kind of great shell of a building. I mean, it was kind of gross what they had it was just sort of it was their clubhouse so they had a bar um, they had a stage they had like they had a stripper pole I mean it was like <laughs> I, I don't even want to know the kind of stuff that had gone down in here but um I completely gutted it just took everything out and even all the stuff they built it was really you know pretty poorly built and falling yeah. apart and yeah. so basically I just gutted it and started from scratch just using the shell and you know put in new floors and floating floors and skylights and you know divided just i worked with an acoustician and we we plotted the thing out and you know we've got a got a live room and like three good size iso rooms and then a couple little smaller spaces where you could put an amp put amps and um yeah yeah great control room like basically i i'm made a point to plan the control room first. You know, I worked with the acoustician. I said, look, let's just, before we even think about what we're going to do with the rest of the space, let's just plan a control room with as few compromises as possible and then figure out where in the building that should go and then plan the rest around that. You know, I also knew that my work, I was getting asked to mix more records than I used to, you know, I mean... I I really love making records from the ground up with people like start to finish but I did notice that that was happening more and I think that's just indicative of the of the times people are mm-hmm. you know only have so much money and they're finding ways to get things recorded on the cheap with their buddy or whatever whatever it may be and then you know they'll they'll bring in an experienced person for the the mix stage so right, right. I thought you know, going forward, I, I need a control room that's just where I can just believe every every single sound that happens in there. And who knows? You know, I've been sort of tinkering a little bit with mastering. I'm not I'm not really oh. offering to do it right now to people because I wanna I wanna kind of get you know get a little more confident with it. But also having you know you need a you need a fantastic sounding room to be doing that at least to you know yeah, yeah be absolutely. doing it really well. So. um Anyway, I just love how this how this place has turned out. Um, it's got I've got a, a reverb chamber in the basement, which was something Amazing. that had always been on my dream list, and yeah, yeah. I managed to, to get that here.
0: How did you How did you come up with the reverb chamber concept? Like, did you uh, model it after an like a classic one, or did you just kind of mess around with your with your um, acoustician guy and find a thing that worked?
1: Well, first of all. As far as I could tell, and I I tried to do a bit of research and talk to some, you know, people that own old studios that have long standing chambers in them and stuff. And it just seemed like everyone was kind of winging it. You know, there was no. Totally. <laughs> so, I, um, so I did, you know, I had, there were some existing parameters in the basement. There were, you know, there were a couple of the walls that were just not going to move because they were these concrete foundation walls and then the ceiling was not movable, nor Mm -hmm. the floor. So basically, we just had the option of there was one wall that we could kind of move and put wherever we wanted. He ran the math, and he kind of gave me a few different options where he thought, you know, the sound would bounce around nicely and there wouldn't be too many nodes where, you know, some frequency would just build up in in an obnoxious way. It's been a couple years now, so I don't remember exactly what they were, but, you know, it was something like eight feet 12 feet 17 feet or like 24 feet or something like that and um certainly with you know knowing that the larger dimension is going to accommodate a longer reverb so i i went with the 17 foot because i did need some space down in the basement for other things and then you know we made sure every surface is incredibly hard and reflective so it's cement painted and then with spar varnish which is some kind of marine varnish that they use on boats that's oh wow apparently the most reflective varnish you can get and um some folks i think it was the guys at east west that told me that that's what they used in their chamber okay and um and then on the new wall we it's tile it's just hard tile so um it, it's incredible how much you know how live it is in there. It's it's difficult to have a conversation with someone in there because it's just the sound is so <laughs> scattered and um, but it's amazing. I mean, the, any tiny little sound just sounds so cool in there. You know, if you
0: and so you run a you run an auxiliary to a single speaker there, and then you have a couple of microphones at the other end of the room. Is that how you've set it up?
1: Yep, exactly. I mean, I'm I messed around a little, and and I probably will continue to over time, but um. What I've settled on for now that I'm really happy with is that it's um it's an it's an old ampex tube speaker amp it's an amp speaker combo it's about five feet away from a wall facing the wall and then the microphones are at the other end of the room facing the other wall oh. kind of pointing a little bit towards the corners oh wow cool you know just to to make sure you're really getting the the reverberation part of the room and as little of the direct sound as possible wow that's that's cool man it's really cool it's just when i blend it into a mix it's just the mixes come together so quickly and there's just something about it you can feel it like you can feel that it's an actual space and not like a, a you know not something that reminds you of a space and i mean i i have a i literally probably have like 30 different reverbs here i love just like all the different flavors of reverb you know springs and plates and digital reverbs and cheap shitty old reverbs that have character and and all the things but there's nothing like the chamber and um wow i've also got it set up so that people can record in there okay you know because it's it's just like a deluxe shower or something right you know people love singing in the shower well i mean you walk in this room and you just want to like try out every sound you can think of. <laughs> so, um so it's wired for that too.
0: Yeah, that's um that's exciting. Is it is it the kind of thing that you mostly use on vocals and stuff or, or are you putting it across like guitar sounds and drums and stuff as well? Um,
1: yeah, anything. Honestly, I mean, I just mm-hmm. sort of try it and see what's appropriate for the material that I'm working on. It's definitely not just a vocal a vocal thing. Yeah, we were running, you know, weird abstract percussion loops through it on this harpist record Uh, she goes by dolphin midwives ran the harp through there sometimes on some songs and sometimes it was the vocals sometimes kind of a little bit of everything you know just to put everything in the same space Mm -hmm. sometimes really driving the speaker and kind of getting it a little gritty and distorted was, was cool and other times keeping it clean yeah i'm still just experimenting with all of it but it's been a blast it's just kind of it's made recording and mixing feel really, really fun again, and make oh, that's great. Makes it kind of feel new. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: In the process of putting all that together and building the room and all that kind of stuff, did it go well? Like, did it go smoothly as far no. as the timing went? And <laughs> and did it put you out of out of work for any period of time when you were waiting for it to get done?
1: Um, no, it did not go smoothly. <laughs> and it, I mean, I know everyone says it and I went into it knowing that, you know, we made a budget and then I was prepared for it to go way over that budget and way over that yeah. schedule. But it went way over my oh, way shit. over, you know, on, on all fronts. But um, as to, to answer your question about being out of work, I, mean, I planned it pretty well for a while, like if it had gone a little closer to my projected over schedule it would have been okay, basically, I was able to negotiate my old lease to last about a year into when the build out of this one began, so okay. so I was working over there and then bouncing back and forth here, you know, just kind of overseeing the project and doing some little things myself, but mostly was hiring it out because it just made more sense you know i'm I'm just more useful, like earning money, producing and engineering and mixing records than like swinging a hammer because i'm not like wildly skilled in that area anyway right. and um you know as much as i would have been nice to build it all myself for the for the satisfaction sense of pride nah. um it wasn't that that didn't make sense so yeah so i was it i was working over there for about a year and then at a certain point i had to bring my stuff over here and of course the yeah. the guys that were building it out i mean i was frustrated that it wasn't further along and they were so annoyed with me that, that I was like, no, I mean, the stuff's coming over here. It's got to come over here. Um, right. So basically when we saw how far away they were from kind of meeting that goal of a deadline, we just really put the priority on the control room so that at least all that gear could come over here and be safe and not be prone to, you know, exposed to dust. Yep. We could get going on wiring it and just getting the sound of it dialed in. And I could eventually you know, I could start working in the control room at least, even when the rest of the place wasn't ready. Okay, that's cool. So we succeeded to some extent, like the windows weren't put in yet because the glass ended up taking way longer to get made than we thought and things like that. But so yeah, basically I was mixing in this control room and sometimes doing overdubs in this control room while looking through the windows in the, the live rooms and the ISO rooms and Which was just a a very active construction zone. (laughs) (laughs) That
0: is, uh, yeah, that would give you a heart attack. Um, Yeah, was there anything in particular that was a massive holdup, or was it just like everything, just all all the steps of?
1: It was kind of everything. It's nobody's fault, really. But um, you know, I think my previous studio, the build out, the the guy that did it was was a real kind of just like bang it out and get it done kind of person and um and these guys turned out to be more like they're real like kind of artisans you know like they're Uh, like cabinet makers and stuff so they're just like we can't bang anything out we're gonna make it beautiful and precise and like oh and check out this super cool idea i had for like what we could do over here in this corner you know yeah and much of it kind of by the time i realized that that was happening um you know, and that that was going to push it way over schedule and over budget. It was, it kind of had already happened. Oh my God. You know, I mean, and I like to, this, I guess this ties into producing records too, but you know, I like to try to find the right people for, for the job and then, and, you know, give them my input and my ideas, but then leave them like a wide berth to also like express themselves and feel invested in it and feel some ownership of something. Um, So I, you know, I, I, I was doing that, but I think maybe I did that a little too much because it just it it, (laughs)
0: spiraled a little out
1: of control. Yeah,
0: it just did. You have to actually like step in and cut them off at some point, or did they finish?
1: Well, yeah, basically the the original crew made it about two thirds the way in, and then um, and then it was finished by a couple of the guys that were helping out, but not leading the charge initially. Yeah, um, and then you know a couple other folks that appeared along the way. At that point, it was more just like just finish this plan, like the checklist. Let's just do this, Mm -hmm. and and most of the really highly skilled stuff had happened. Okay, so wild angles that were part of the drawings for the control room and floating floors and diffusers, and the doors have to be just airtight. Just. A lot of precision stuff that's just not part of regular carpentry for guys that maybe even have built yeah. houses before. But um, it worked out in the end. And I mean, everyone that worked on this place was so passionate and, you know, oh, cool. did fantastic work. And most of them were musicians, actually. Oh, wow. Too.
0: Oh. Yeah, I had that at, in my place where I built out a basically a garage kind of thing. And, and, uh, yeah, the guy doing the walls is, um, is in Reverend Horton Heat and <laughs> and the bass player or the, the contractor was Lucinda Williams' bass player. Wow,
1: yeah. that's amazing. That's kind of, yeah, that's awesome. Only in Nashville.
0: Right. One thing that you mentioned that I just want to jump on for a second is the, the whole thing about coming into a project at the mix stage. And um, that's something that I, I don't, Really, ever do. I don't know why. It's just, it hasn't come up. I guess I've mixed a couple records that I have nothing to do with, but do you enjoy that process of like coming in totally fresh at the mix stage when everything is already tracked, or do you find it confusing, or like is
1: there a general thing that (laughs) you find with that process? For a while, for years, I really didn't enjoy it. I mean, I liked Uh the idea of it, but then every time it would come around, I just, it was. I just didn't enjoy it. I mean, I feel like because I'm so used to, you know, seeing something through from start to finish, by the time you get to mixing, you you have such an understanding of why every sound exists and, you know, yep. how you arrived at that decision and why you tracked it the way you did and why, you, why you even you played in that register or whatever like kind of you know where it's gonna sit you know no oh, we're gonna let's just track this thing and it's gonna be really quiet in the back and kind of panned over to one side or what you know something like that but yeah when you know you mix someone's record you just you kind of pull the faders up and you don't have any of that and I yeah. think there are probably there are probably cases where that can be an advantage to, to just come in fresh um, uh-huh. and not have any of that kind of preconceived baggage or anything but uh but a lot of times i feel like you know i'm just getting to the end of mixing a record when i'm like really feeling inside it and like i understand the vocabulary that they're working with and what they're going for mm-hmm. so in that way um just mixing is frustrating but i i found that i'm starting to enjoy it more and mm-hmm. i'm i'm not entirely sure why i think maybe you know, maybe my attitude about it just changed a bit. And I've learned a bit more about what questions to ask in advance. And, you know, I try to lay my eyes on the session like well in advance too and ask any questions. If I see something that looks confusing or messy, you know, try to have that conversation well before the day that you're supposed to be delivering the mix.
0: Do you have a way, a process for yourself of like vetting projects where something where you can avoid getting into a a project that was shittily recorded where they just are like, they want Tucker Martin to mix it, to bring it on home. But there's like only so much you can do if something's recorded badly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I think any of us who've done it a long time, you, you learn, you kind of learn how to spot potential frustrations from far, you know, coming from a mile away. I just try to be clear. I mean, first of all, I also like to assume that most people that are reaching out to me are, fairly intelligent and you know don't need me to spell it out too much that you know they say they they want the record to sound like you know, Radiohead in Rainbows and I'm like <laughs> look I also love that record do you want me to list all the reasons why this is not going to sound anything like that you know like <laughs> starting from yeah. starting from your songs and your musicians and the you know, the way it was recorded and a billion things, you know, I'm fine with the references like that. If you assuming everyone knows that it's kind of just saying like, Hey, this is like things we were inspired by while we were making it. And, you know, that's fine. I think you right. just kind of tuck that in the back of your mind and, um, you know, it, that can be useful if it's like a really super raw, noisy record, you know, that that's nice to know that that they maybe want you to really embrace the, the noisy raw aspects of the recording, or if it's something that's, you know, super refined and more polished, you know, that definitely gives me an idea of where that, where their heads are. But um, yeah, it's, it, it can be, it can be tricky. I've learned though, just to, I've learned that like any sound, any recording can be, you know, can be made useful. Um, Not any recording can be made to sound like nice and pretty or, you know professional or hi-fi right. or whatever but like but as long as people are open to that you know you can just take a a really middle of the road recording of something and just find an interesting point of view on it by the way it's processed or just by the role that it plays in the mix um mm-hmm. uh, you know the the artist doesn't necessarily always welcome like hearing their sounds come back wildly different um right but not that i i'm not usually making like incredibly bold decisions like that either because you know you're, you're working with what you've got and you have a limited amount of time and it's it's not the time to just suddenly turn it into something that it's not but um where i used to get really frustrated by a badly recorded something now i i just try to look at it as an opportunity to lead me to trying something I wouldn't have tried, you know? Oh, cool. Yeah. Something that... That's a good way to look at it. Well, you know, something that really helped for me is I'm a huge fan and have been, you know, since the early 90s or no, actually the, probably the late 80s of Chad Blake. And, you know, at a certain point, he basically, he moved to England or Wales or somewhere over there and... He just basically stopped recording records and just turned into a mixer and he yeah. he embraced working in the box. I mean that's something I haven't completely done yet. um I still like to mix on the console, but you know, I watched interviews with him, and I've gotten to meet him and pick his brain before and just read anything i can and and I saw how he you know here's just a master, like this guy makes some of the coolest sounding records I've ever heard, and yes. Yeah. He, he just seemed to have no attitude about, you know, what he received to mix it. He was like, all right, well, here it is. My job is just to make a amazing mix of this, you know, not to sit around right. and be like, well, if they'd given me this and that, maybe I could have made a great mix, you know? Right, He's like, right. nope, it's just time to make a great mix. Um, which isn't to say that, you know, he doesn't probably enjoy more like working with things that are well recorded and and all that stuff. Although but, he's
0: he's famous for and enjoys and is like the best at like serious manipulation too, right? Like right. if you give him a if you give him a, a a kick drum sound, it's not gonna sound like that when he gets his mitts on it.
1: Right. Exactly. So that was a great, great reminder for me. Just like right. you know. Yeah, I went I I went down and a year or so, a year or two ago, he was in LA doing he did one of those just day long mix with the masters thing. And what was cool about that one was that they just, like, the studio just handed him um, some song. They were just like, here's a song. I don't know how they got it, but like, so it's somebody recorded it, hasn't been mixed. And like, Chad had never heard it before. He didn't know what he was getting into. Um, uh-huh. I mean, he literally, like, we watched him open the session for the first time. So it was really cool to see him go through that process and, wow. you know, scratch his head a bit and, and wrestle with it. I mean, there were some things that he really struggled with to get to a place that he was really happy with. Um, And it was a long day. Like, you know, it was probably a 12-hour day. And by the end, it wasn't finished. He was like, you're not going to, we're not going to get this buttoned up. But like, you know, everyone got a sense of the process. And I think it was really helpful for all of us to see him struggle with things. And, you know, he took what I thought was a like a not a very compelling song. And, you know, but... The recording was fine i mean it sounded uh-huh. like it was quote unquote well recorded but you know not interesting and by the end i was i was pretty drawn in you know i was pretty compelled wow, cool. just like and and i realized how much it was like the sonics when he got them dialed they were drawing me into the song and making me care about the song in a way i hadn't i mean i'm not saying that you know he made a bad song good or something but i just think he managed to he knew that there was something good in there in the song and he just kept working until it started to reveal itself. And that was, that was awesome. So yeah, I I definitely try to try to come to all of it, you know, thinking that like anything I mix, like there's, there's a really cool track in here and somewhere, somewhere. And I just have to, (laughs) I have to do the work to get to the place where I really understand what that is, you know?
0: So speaking of just the mixing side of what you do, um, is there a? Do you have a process like when you get tracks, say for a project that you didn't record and you're not involved, and you, and you have to like obviously get to know it and and spend some time with the tracks and see what's there? But aside from that, like, do you have a uh, a way you set things up that's pretty consistent every time? I mean, not saying that you don't have any variation, obviously, but do you lay things out in a similar way across your console every time, and then have certain buses and effects laid out for you or do you start from scratch and just see what every song needs
1: um i i mean i guess i do even though i don't necessarily think of it that way i know that people that mix in the box like they have templates and it's just that's just just how they work um for me no i mean i would say that the the consistent things are i do like to have drums on the far left like starting down there and then bass and then maybe rhythm instruments um and then vocals a little further to the right, which is in my case, like closer to the center of the console and the the ideal listening position. Um, Though I'm fairly loose about all that stuff. If for some reason it, it makes sense for it to come up in a different order. I do have a, you know, I have the Chandler TG one that I really like to have on a bus, usually for drums. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's pretty aggressive. So it's, I definitely don't use it all the time, but I usually have that and then the Neve 33609, which is uh, just a, you know, it's it's a less extreme sounding compressor that's right. just, but still really flattering often on a drum kit. Uh, and I've got my my EMT plate on Send 1 and I have a Memory Man on Send 2 for just a little delay, like usually, you know, maybe cool. something kind of slappy, slappy yeah. backy. Um, I like, you know, how it, It rolls off so much top, and it's kind of just this. It's it's a little bit lo-fi, but in a in a foxy way. Yeah. So usually, like to tuck that under a vocal or something. It's it's not in the way. You know, it's just Mm -hmm. it it doesn't have that full spectrum that could make it take up a lot of space. Um, Is it just
0: a mono effect, or do you have a stereo? That's mono.
1: Yeah. Okay. That's just a mono effect. Um, and then the others the rest of the the sends can change more project to project often i'll have a tape delay space echo or the full tone or something lately now i have the chamber right pretty much probably going to always be be up maybe that's going to be my my send three my permanent send three then i just start reacting to the music and sometimes i hardly use any of those things but usually sprinkling those in to some degree. And do you
0: do a lot of EQing and stuff in the mix process? I know some people do, some people don't. And and the API cuz you've still got that API console, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that filled with like 550s or what kind of EQ do They are have on
1: they're those? Are 550Ls which is which is just like a longer 550 because the slots are longer than a it's like taller than a a 550 okay. that you know that it than the 500 series. So those Um, aren't
0: super surgical EQs, then. So do you do do you use those for
1: Um, uh, all that much, or I do, I do. But yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. They're definitely more of just a broad thing. They're two dB steps, and it's just kind of something when you want to, you know, just crank something in a, you know, up or down, but in a, you know, just kind of in a in a broader sense. And yeah. for surgical stuff, I mean, I, I have lots of outboard and, you know, I definitely do use plug-in EQs sometimes, especially when I want to automate things, you know, if it's a certain oh, section yeah. problematic in one area, but not the rest of the song. Or sometimes there's right, just right. like a certain word whenever they go to that note, whenever the vocal goes to that note that, you know, 700 hertz is just piercing or something, you know, I'll just yeah. automate that down. But I use, yeah, I, I kind of use it's definitely a hybrid of of analog and uh, processing and and plugins
0: uh, when you take on a project like when somebody hires you to mix do you have a general amount of time you spend on a thing like do you shoot for two songs a day do you try and do one song a day do you does it depend on their budget like how do you come it up definitely with how does. much time you're gonna spend
1: and my you know I have management and they help they try to help sort that out because it it's certainly informed by budget um, yeah one song a day is pretty pretty nice. I mean, I know that's luxurious these days, but it's yeah. but it's not hard to, to spend a day especially when it's a track you haven't spent sure. time with, you know, because when I'm tracking something from the ground up, by the time I get to mixing, I have made a lot of decisions and I've prepped, thi- you know, I've done a lot of editing yeah. and I just have a pretty good sense of where I want to go with it and I've been listening to the rough mixes and I know what I like about them and what I don't like. Mm-hmm. So that that gives you a real head start. But um otherwise, yeah, it's budget dependent. I mean, I just did a record where I had to do three songs a day and that's yeah. that's faster than I normally work, but um, it was also a record where they it wasn't a lot of tracks. Like when there were drums, the drums were on one track and oh, okay. some things like that. So there were a lot of commitments that had been made, which was great. Yeah. And that that was actually yeah. really fun. It's that's super kind of Refreshing, yeah, to not just Like, all right, here's 18 drum tracks. Uh, We need a mix in four hours. Go. Yeah. It's all over the, you know, all over the map. I would say just out of the gate when people are like, hey, I'm interested in having Tucker mix. Like, how much time, you know, should I expect? Like, that's usually where the conversation starts. It's like, hey, song a day is nice. You know, it gives you also a chance to... Kind of get somewhere you're happy with by the end of the day and then just lay your fresh ears on it in the morning and just make sure there's not some little thing that that you catch um, after you haven't been listening to it for 10 hours straight.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. Right. <laughs> you mentioned drums and I would love to hear your thoughts on, on recording drums and how you approach them as a, as a drummer, because that was your original thing, right? Like you were, yeah. you've played on a bunch of the projects that, that you've produced and I love your drumming and I'd like to talk a little bit about that, but like coming at production and engineering from a musician's slash drummer point of view, how does that make it unique for you?
1: Um, well, you know, uh, part part of the answer is I don't know because it's the only you know because it's the only thing I know. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't necessarily know how I would approach things differently if I weren't a drummer first. But I have noticed. I mean, over the years, I've made a lot of records and you know been able to observe through just observing myself and then things people said to me. I think it's clear that like drums are something that I they just really speak to me on a visceral level and they need to speak to me. You know, I, mm-hmm. I just need to feel them a certain way. I think being a drummer, probably that's, that's the influence of being a drummer in, in my, you know, engineering, producing, mixing work is um, to me, drums, there's a feeling when you hit a drum or a cymbal or, or anything to make a sound. There's, there's a way it feels when it feels right. You know, like yeah. you're hitting it in the sweet spot to get a certain tone out of it. And it bounces back just so because you're not like hitting it too hard or not hitting it too soft or whatever. And there's just a there's just a feeling when it all feels right uh, when you're when you're playing drums. And there's a version of that feeling that that I need to get when I'm mixing too or recording. You know, I need to. Mm-hmm. I I just know of this kind of visceral quality, and I know of the sound that I'm trying to get the drum to make when I hit it. And if I'm not getting some version of that feeling back through the speakers, like something needs to change, you know, right? Wh- whether yeah. I'm playing or someone else. I mean, usually it's somebody else playing.
0: So how how do you actually do it when you're producing something and you are going to play drums on something as well? Do you have somebody that works there that yeah. takes over for you? Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is that is tricky. And for years, I I I resisted playing drums on things, even though people, what you know, when I was asked to. um just because wearing all those hats is so hard. As soon as I get behind the drum kit, I, I lose some of the objectivity that I have when I'm just in the control room. But on the other hand, you get you get the the added, you know, you get the benefit of being, like, inside the music, like, on that way. You, yeah. You know, it's just so...
0: That's actually how, for me, like, I'm more comfortable actually playing on something that I'm producing. I find, right. like, my attention is so... Finally tuned when I'm actually playing
1: right i I'm finding that more too over time, and I think some of it was was learning to delegate you know the control room stuff to an assistant and being mm-hmm. able to trust them too on a pretty deep level because you know I'm in there playing like I'm just hearing this stuff through headphones like everybody else like I can't make super critical right. decisions about the way drums are being tracked um, I mean I will I'll mic them up and I'll have somebody hit them while I kind of make, you know, some broad decisions about compression yeah. and EQ and levels and stuff, but everyone plays so differently and then, you know, who knows what each song's going to call for as far as how you're playing and maybe wanting to even swap out some drums. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah I that's that's really important is to have someone on this end that I can trust. Right. I mean, I will say it, more often than not i come in the control room and there's something i hear it back and there's there's something that i would have addressed and handled differently but yeah. um in that case you know i either just we have we go and redo it or i just learn like okay well my you know my overhead mics are not quite what i would have wanted on this but the performance is great and we can make it work yeah. you know yeah. i mean uh, um, a lot of this is, is that, right? I mean, that's a theme in mixing someone else's music. Like, well, it's, that's, this is this is what it is. Let's make this cool. And then that pushes you to do things you might not normally do, which I actually love when that happens. Yeah. That's part of what keeps it fun and interesting.
0: <laughs> when you were growing up, was that your thing? You were just a drummer and and were you playing in bands and stuff like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Nashville. Yeah. And
0: Tell me a little bit about growing up here and and... Your dad was a songwriter, right? Yeah. He wrote a song for Elvis, a hit for Elvis.
1: He did. That's crazy. <laughs> it, it was it was number one, the day Elvis died. Holy shit. It's yeah. a crazy
0: song. I listened to it this morning. I've
1: never heard it. <laughs> it is. It's wild. It's huh. it's really cool. But
0: so what was what was going on? Like he was a full time Nashville songwriter?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. I mean that was that was how he raised he raised our family. Um for the and, you know, the early years he was he was working on you know, like a graveyard shift loading trucks or bartending and various jobs while he was trying to get it going, but you know eventually caught some breaks and was able to really have a good run.
0: Did you grow up in this like on music row in the studios and stuff, or was he not so much in the studio world
1: um not not in record making so much more demos like i I would go to his demos that he was recording you know he would he would write a song, maybe just record it to a cassette or something just to capture the idea. And then he would use that to find whoever he thought, you know, there, there were, there'd just be a bunch of singers that were kind of the, the singers people were using for your demos. And, you know, is it a man or is it a woman? Is it, you know, deep chesty raspy thing, or is it, you know, pretty yeah. and whatever. So you just, and he would pick the, the singer and the musicians. A lot of times, I mean, this, I'm sure it's the same way now. I mean, you can tell me if, if i'm wrong but um back then a lot of times the demos would be like a guy with a studio who would sort of play everything maybe he'd just program the drums i mean it was definitely a demo made to be a demo not like a demo that right. might end up being the record um yeah. but you know it kind of spelled out the tempo and the melody and like and then here here the harmonies come in here and you know it's so that not too much imagination was required when he would pitch that demo to a certain artist or a producer so they didn't have to just imagine it um in fact a lot of his demos most of them sound a lot like the finished record
0: um, oh wow okay that's yeah. cool yeah <laughs> so um, so yeah and, and so so were you playing drums as a as a little kid
1: i i started playing drums in 5th grade because that's pretty little yeah actually i think a little earlier than that i had a like a snare drum you know i started beating on uh empty baskin robbins ice cream buckets that my mom (laughs) would pick up and i would just beat through them though in a day and she would just keep picking them up and then finally i got a snare drum and then in fifth grade i had some friends that like i had a friend who was playing guitar and you know he played this van halen song and i couldn't believe it it sounded just like van halen and then (laughs) you know another friend who learned to play the bass just because Uh, he wanted to play with with our other friend who played the guitar and that was kind of my incentive to really go for it i was like i have gotta save up money and buy a drum kit and Mm -hmm. and i did and then i learned i learned to really play the drums by playing in that band and we formed a band it was a cover band um but you know that's a great way to learn just learn the songs of music that you like and play them in front of people with you know play with people and play in front of people um and honestly like that that turned out to be we we were busy like we were playing most weekends and we were making you know we were making like usually a thousand bucks or more per gig at after a certain point playing frat parties at Vanderbilt and like playing Uh, the playing the you know the high school dance or the Eighth grade proms, or just whatever, pe- yeah. pe- people loved having. Like, you know, if you're going to hire a band, and you have the option of hiring like kids, the age of the kids that are going to the event, that sure. that was very appealing. It was it was novel. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So basically, I learned I learned quickly through that. I mean, I I didn't wasn't like great or anything, but you know, I could. We we were we were playing the songs, and we were getting better fast. So.
0: Did you, did you have much exposure to some of the great drummers that were in town here? Or was that sort of a little out of your
1: grasp? I would say, no, I did. You know, that wasn't, they weren't particularly on my radar. I mean, I was just interested in the drummers that were in the bands that I liked, you know, whatever, like. Who
0: who were the big ones for you? Like who influenced you the most?
1: Well, in that time, I mean, definitely R.E.M., like the early R.E.M. just hit me hard at the right age. Um. Yeah. So I learned a lot of that stuff, those early records and um Rolling Stones. I mean my dad took us to see the Rolling Stones in 1981. I was Ooh, I was 9, but I remember it so well. Yeah, you know, I mean Beatles and but also in the in the mid 80s I liked a lot of the kind of alternative stuff that I can maybe now is is what became indie rock or something, but you know, it was like college mm-hmm stuff the band a lot of the bands from athens like pylon and love tractor and i've had phases you know that of of just about everything it feels like i mean i you know at one point i was so obsessed with new orleans music and the meters and um and you know and funk and and like old school country and avant-garde jazz and you know i i don't know i i mean grateful dead Or you you name it, honestly. Like, I just, I love kind of discovering a new universe of music and just going deep and going deep and learning anything I can from it. And, you know,
0: I think that's important. Like, as for a guy that's that works like you do to have, you know, like to jump from Bill Frizzell to the Decemberist or something, like you kind of have to have a wide palette of of things to draw from.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and it's it's just music, right? It's just. Like people putting sounds together in a way that feels good to them and that's that's expressing something. Yeah. Um, yeah, I I love it. It keeps it interesting for me too. You know, to get to go from a December's record to a Bill Frisell record to a My Morning Jacket record. You know, to yeah, a yeah, Aoife O'Donovan record or, or whatever it might be.
0: I find that very interesting too. Is like that you've worked with some of these artist now for so long, you know, like Frizzell going, I don't know what the first Frizzell record you did would have been, but it's like 20 years, right? Going back or longer. I think it's,
1: I think we were talking about it the other day. I think it's more like 25. Um,
0: Can you tell me a little bit about how that works for you? Like as far as I, I, you know, with, with, with Bill, obviously you've got Lee Townsend working there as well, who is sort of the, the, The buffer, I guess, but with the Decemberists, where you're producing, like, do you put much thought before the project starts into like how are we going to approach this one differently or anything like that, or what's your process in working with somebody multiple times?
1: Oh, right, yeah. I mean, it's it's really important to me to make sure that you know we never make the same record that we already made. Yeah, and I think the only time that's that's ever even a slight temptation is is maybe if you your previous record you made was you just nailed it, you know, it was successful. And uh, maybe, you know, as far as reaching the audience, but also just if, if it felt artistically successful, there can yeah. be a temptation, even if it's subconscious, just to like, all right, well, what did we do? Yeah, well, let's let's kind of do that again. <laughs> um, but I just, I feel like anytime I make a record that's that I'm really proud of, that's original, and that also kind of resonates on a... It, it, you know to people besides those of us who made it it, it's usually because we were really just being of that moment and not trying to you know do something we did before or even set out you know you can make sort of a plan you can talk about what you want to do um at the outset but it doesn't matter like how much you plan you've got to be willing to you know make a turn in the process because things will pre- pre- present itself, at, you know. Yeah. You just have to re- respond to what's actually happening at the moment in the room and not, oh, well, I thought we said we were going to go for a drum sound like Abbey Road or something. Well, you know what? Well, I don't know. But the the muted drums is just not sounding cool on this song. So, right, so right. I take it back. Um, Do you, yeah. Has it ever
0: come up where you feel like that you can't, be the guy anymore for a particular artist like is, has that ever happened where you're just like you should you need a different producer
1: well you know that's a tr- that's a that's a tricky one because that's something that everyone should be aware of you know I should be aware of that and the artist should be aware of that um i think where where i think it's tricky is because i personally truly love the challenge of you know like sitting down with an artist and being like okay look we've made six records together and we've covered a bit of territory and kind of the further in we get, maybe the more likely we are to just sort of settle into something too familiar. I'd love to just sit there and say, like, let's really, let's talk about how to change things up enough that we can't possibly mm-hmm. do that. You know, Right. Um, just create, put some new limitations on it, whatever, do it in a, in a new space, um, whatever, just talk it through and, Talk about the things that you feel like have become these like little go-to devices that you all use too much and make a pact that you're not going to do that (laughs) and keep each other honest. (laughs) If it starts to happen, be like, Hey, this is really comfortable territory for us. But you know that, but this isn't, it's not fresh.
0: Can you talk a little bit about um, like a specific artist say like, let's take Bill Frizzell, somebody who you've made a bunch of, I don't know how many, but it's a, you've made a, a bunch of records. There's some in the middle there where where Lee and Bill use different people, I guess. But generally, you've done the bulk of his work over the last, I guess, 25 years. Um, what does a new Bill Frizzell project look like? Do, like, they come and do they do it at your place? Do, they, do you get much um, information before the session about direction or sonics or anything like
1: that bill is pretty unique um really unique i mean he's just he's unique period like in the world of music and musicians but but also very unique in the like stable of artists that i've been fortunate to work with over a long period of time because he he works very quickly uh you know Uh usually it's it's almost always like between one and four takes like max i mean again I'd be hard pressed to remember ever doing more than four takes of a tune with Bill. So he he's he makes the decisions um, about what's going to se- separate it from things he's done in the past. Those decisions are made like a year before you even get to the studio because he's yeah. written material with a certain group of musicians in mind, and often it's a it's a new assortment of people that haven't played together in that exact configuration. Um, right. He's just not somebody who's just like this is my band, you know. So I wrote, right. wrote a song and now I take it to the band. So, um, so it's uh, making a Bill for Zell record is usually he leaves a lot of room for the first few takes, which are the only takes. There's so much discovery happening. It's like when, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's really getting to hear each other kind of not necessarily for the first time because sometimes they maybe have done a little tour or something, but, um, you know, it's not something they've all done a million times and they just fall into habits. Right, so course, the instrumentation yeah. and the writing is, is, is the way that I think he usually tries to make them different. I mean, there've been some more extreme cases like the floor tone records we did where it was, yeah. I mean, that was literally Bill and Matt Chamberlain improvising and then Lee Townsend and I taking the stuff away and chopping it up and making kind of little forms of pieces based on sections that we liked and then bringing that to bill and in some cases they were already done but then in some cases he would take that and and write like write a horn line over it or you know have a have an additional melody to add whether it be guitar or something we did with strings or, or um you know or bass we we always added bass but The bass was usually done after the fact.
0: And do you find that you have to hold your tongue sometimes when you're, you know, you're a producer, but your job is just to engineer? And so, you know, in the case of Bill, he's got Lee sitting there being the producer. You need to obviously, like, hold back your opinions about certain things. Uh, Do do you find that that's something that you have to really kind of turn off in your brain?
1: You know, a little bit early on, I felt that way, but we've really found a rhythm and I mean, the fact that Bill flies out to Portland to make records here with me, you know, he lives in New York. He could make a record with anybody at any studio. People would yeah. love to make a record with that guy. Like, he, you know, that's one of many ways that he shows me how much he values my point of view. Yep. Um, and, you know, there's just a, I kind of have a pretty wide berth of, of freedom in capturing and presenting the sounds on those records and lee is the producer on them you know except for the floor tone ones lee is is the producer but also because we're doing you know one to four takes the the type of producing is also very different than what i usually do you know when right. working with yeah. bands and stuff it's it's kind of like hey you know they just did three takes and lee might say ah. Uh, two and three were great but i think maybe two's the one you know and bill's like yeah two felt good you know Well, let's listen So we listen and you know and maybe lee will be like what do you think about just we use the intro from three and put it on two and and then you know that sort of thing is the type of producing that happens on a bill frazell record it's not like bill you should you should play harder in this section or you should play these notes instead or like what if we added you know kazoos and mellotrons here you know it's none of that it's really just kind of like all right Bill knows what he's doing. We're really mostly <laughs> trying to capture a moment here and then, but you know everybody could use a little sounding board on the other side of the glass just to make sure yeah. we don't like overlook something cool that happened that we you know that maybe Bill didn't notice or something. but yeah, yeah. Um, so we all work really well together and we work quickly. Um, I think I mean that that's the only time really that I'm in a role of just the engineer. Um, and mm-hmm. I, it's not something I would want to do often, but because it's bill and because I love the sounds that I get to work with and because we work quickly and it's just really satisfying, you know, by the end yeah. it's, it's fun. And I, you know, I feel like my point of view is, is valuable there, right. even if it's not, you know, doesn't have the, the producer name to it. Um, so it's just, yeah, he's just a really unique artist, like in my life and, I've learned so much from him, and you know i I roped him into projects that I produce and we we just have a great relationship that goes way back and we've done all kinds of stuff together. so yeah, um
0: you know we we you and I worked together on a project that i I forgot about, but I was reminded that uh Kelly Joe Phelps record slingshot Professional. Oh, that's right. I played on that record, but that's uh, right, that's when I, I think when but, I
1: first learned about you and Lee uh produced a record of you guys around that time, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and we became Kelly Joe's band sort of right after that record. But but yeah, half of it we did in Toronto with Lee coming to Toronto and it was me and Scotty Amendola and um some Toronto guys and Jesse Zubot on fiddle and and Kelly Joe and then you did the the other half of the record in I, I don't know if I you're was in, in Seattle, Seattle at, the time, at the time, yeah, but somewhere.
1: Seattle, yeah.
0: And with in Bill my and whoever else was on the on that record, I've I totally forgotten about that, and then I saw it in your credits, so I was like, "Holy shit!" That's
1: right, I know. I've actually <laughs> that's won, a cool record. If I loved it, uh, I lo- yeah. yeah, he's he's amazing. I'm not sure; I haven't really kept up with what he's up to, but I think he lives around here, doesn't he? Live in Vancouver, well, he's, Washington?
0: He's he's not doing music anymore, unfortunately. Ah. He he, I made his last record, which was in 2012. Uh, it was just a solo record, but I I recorded it. And then he toured for like a year after that, and then he just like stopped, and he mm-hmm. just like was fried of the whole thing, and he doesn't play anymore. Like he actually got me to sell all his guitars. And Whoa. Stuff. So, um, he, I think he has one guitar left, and he, yeah, I haven't heard from him in a, in a while. But um, wow, I feel like we'll hear from him again at some point.
1: I think we will. He's yeah just waiting just when you least
0: expect it <laughs> what about the Decemberists? can you tell me a little bit about working with those guys i mean you've made so many records with them and wildly successful records too um how do you approach a new project with those guys i i'd imagine Colins pretty uh he's got a pretty pretty like a pretty deep understanding of what he wants to do before he starts but do you guys do much pre-production and stuff for those records
1: um it's it's varied we have we've had uh-huh. pre-production where there have been rehearsals you know that I go to and stuff. And we've made several records where they haven't rehearsed the material at all okay. in advance. I think when that was a new thing for them, it was fun and exciting. And then I think it also reached a point a few records later where it was a point of frustration for the band and for, you know, sometimes for me too, things would just come up in the studio that was was like, man, if we'd just, if, if you guys had rehearsed, if you'd played these songs before now, um, you know we things would be just going a lot <laughs> s- more smoothly and a lot more yeah. quickly because it's you know people just don't really the, the the band doesn't get a chance to kind of vet their own ideas very much it's sort of like that. they play their first idea and you know if it's if it's not what colin was wanting to hear like right away you know he might say so and you know musicians just like a chance to s- kind of explore a song before like all eyes are on you and and you're recording Mm -hmm. and like here's your part that's gonna be the part on the record forever Uh, so uh, but a thing about the december is that you know getting back to that trying to make sure you don't make the same record colin usually would have kind of a concept i mean it could be a very very loose concept but like the the king is dead we we you know, he wrote the songs were very they were it was kind of his most Americana sounding batch of songs and um he called it the barn record. He was like, Let's make our barn record, you know. Like <laughs> I don't know, I think we've, you know, referenced Harvest or something. Was that that wasn't even really made in a barn, but there was a picture of them playing in a barn on the back. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We all imagined it was made in a barn. <laughs> <laughs> but um, So, you know, part of that was like, okay, well, we're all just going to be in the same room in the barn and that kind of ties your hands in a lot of ways. And, but cool things come out of those limitations. And then. Did you actually do it in a barn? Yeah, we did it in a barn. I was just sitting there like on a, with a little Mackie board just for, you know, just for playback and some headphones. Oh, so
0: you're not, that's not a figure of speech. You were actually in a barn.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a figure of speech and it was literal it was kind of like <laughs> musically musically let's make our barn record but also let's make our barn record in a barn the record before that i think it was the one right before that or soon before that was hazards of love which was written as a concept record you know the it was a an hour long record all the songs were related to the same story all the tracks overlapped and bled into each other and you know so that kind of gave that one a, a, an identity and then the one after that, if I'm keeping track of the chronology correctly, um what a terrible world, what a beautiful world it uh-huh. that one for a while, Colin was like, "Oh God, I can't figure out like what the concept should be for this one, like what you know, what's our little kind of tagline for what kind of record we're making, and then." what he eventually realized was like oh hey we've never made a record that doesn't have one like where we <laughs> you know <laughs> where we go in and it we're not saying like don't forget we're That's making our barn record yeah there the, is no concept exactly that was it and um you know i i think that was successful on the one hand but also that record maybe didn't have quite the the sort of continuity that some of the others had and it could be for that reason. I mean, I also think we probably could have left a couple tracks off. It was, it was pretty long, Okay. but um, hindsight 2020 <laughs> anyway. So that's, you know, that was just sort of a fun way in the, in that case of the Decemberist that, right. You know, You try to make it different every time. And on the hazards of love, it was, there was a lot of, they, they all brought in like massive amps, like big orange cabinets <laughs> and heads and like, you know kind of making a point to embrace big heavy sounds yeah. and then the next record like they had sold all that gear and you know <laughs> i gotten that out of their yeah, yeah. system and stuff so i think everyone we all just find ways you know sometimes those ideas are coming from me and often they're coming from principal songwriter or just collectively from the band and that's that's part of the fun
0: when you approach working with a band not and not just like bill and his guys of that of that record but it's an actual band um how how deep do you go into like sounds and stuff like that do you kind of let them come up with their own thing or are you working with the guitar player on tones and the drummer on sounds or it's what's your role
1: i mean it's really it's a fluid thing and sometimes you know sometimes i'll have i'll have an idea that feels really clear for a song and i'm like just give me a minute you know and i'll I'll go grab all these different drums from around the place and, like, set up a kit and change a head out and grab these certain cymbals, um, treat the drums a certain way, and then maybe even mic them a certain way. And, you know, it, the spectrum runs from that to, like, all right, on this song, well, I just, you know, I'm mostly I just want to start by hearing what everyone's first impulse is, and then I'm going to react to that, you know? Hmm. I'll just mm-hmm. be like, ah, that that, that backbeat feels like it's just making the song too square or the sound of that snare i'm not feeling it or this this amp isn't the amp for this or the you know something feels too busy i think there's too much strumming whatever it is you just you just got to react by hearing what they do first um so you know sometimes sometimes the the way to go is to is to just say to the musician like you know hey something's not quite working it feels like maybe it needs to be whatever, more, you know, it's too, too dense. It's taking up too much space. It's fighting with this other instrument. You know, what do you think we should do? Certain people just really like to feel like it was their idea and they came up with it and it's their own, you know, they find their own solution um, that just works better as far as managing certain personalities. And then, you know, there's right. some people that just prefer, they just look at me and I'm like, cool, well, what do you, what should I do? What do you think? You know, like, yeah. Yeah. um, so I mean, you know how it is. You you produce records. It's just it's yeah. It, it's all over the map. Um, whatever gets the the best result. And every band has a different dynamic. Some bands like the the front person is you know is, it's it's kind of a dictatorship of sorts. And and other ones are mm-hmm. closer to a democracy. Never a, a total democracy, but um, yeah yeah. So <laughs> it's just kind of assessing what you have to work with. Some people show up like the Decemberists are a kind of unique in that I feel like the songs are always very thoroughly written like we almost never tinker with the song the song form I mean we have but not very often Um, whereas a lot of people tend to come in with like yeah here's my kind of idea for a song you know and by the time we're done with it you know someone pointed out that the intro should be longer and it just should start you know more ambient and sort of these things come in gradually and like let's add a bridge because it just feels like too linear otherwise, things like that. But um, not in the case of the Decemberists. It's, it's like that's. I mean, that's really Colin's craft, and he, he's so it's all so at. brilliant at. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah,
0: how long do you spend on those records? I'm I'm sure everyone's a little different, but like, is it a a week or three weeks or
1: Ooh, six weeks? Or? I would say. I mean, yeah, always it is always different, even with them. Um, but I would say maybe about two or three weeks of tracking, mm-hmm. Pro- probably usually aim for like two two or three weeks and just depending, you know, depending on how prepared everyone was and just how things go and how much time you can afford to take too. Um, yeah. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. longer if we get to the end of that stretch and feel like it's not fully baked yet, then we'll, mm-hmm. we'll keep going. Um, a, a lot of this stuff is dictated by budget. I mean, the Decemberists and my morning jacket you know there's some things that are that stand out in that they're i mean they definitely don't have endless money but it's we also don't have to make the record in a week so right yeah you know it's it's nice to it, it's nice to have extra time to explore things but sometimes you can have too much time and then you you know you risk overthinking it
0: how do you determine that stuff like from a strictly crassly financial point of view, do you just come up with some amount that you're going to charge them as for the entire project and then the amount of time that it takes is just depends on the project or do you say like, you got me for three weeks or how do you deal with that kind of stuff? Oh
1: right, well I, I, I'll I say again, I am I mean I've been fortunate for 20 years or so to have management like really good management. I just a, a year or so ago switched from my original manager who's just he retired he got out of the game uh-huh. but um you know those guys handle the nitty gritty of the conversation but it's you know it's something along the lines of like figuring out a day rate for me and then you say like okay well look it looks like we're looking at 15 days of tracking and 10 days of mixing um that comes out to x amount so okay so then there's a flat fee for the record you know, maybe if it goes a couple days over, no big deal. Obviously, there has to be some protection for me where if band suddenly wants to spend three more weeks than what was originally agreed on, right. that I'm not just doing it for nothing. But, um, yeah. you know, managers usually figure that out. But also, I, I go into it with a pretty good understanding of, you know, hey, by this date, like, w- this needs to be done because right. they're out of money. And if I want to spend another week working on it after that, okay fine but that's on me you know right um yeah yeah. and that's happened before like for whatever due to unforeseen circumstances or just if i can just tell how close we are to having a great record but we're not quite there or you know or some of the vocals just aren't quite holding up now that we've been listening to them whatever it might be you know i would i mean first and foremost like i do this because i want to make great records and i love doing it and i want to feel like i'm making something special and i want to feel like each time i'm making a record it's like the best record i've made and all those things so you know i'm not i'm not one to just be like oop time's up here's your here's (laughs) what we got go home see ya (laughs) hope you enjoy it um you know yeah i'm I'm, i get it yeah definitely a like a team a team member like you know i often feel like kind of the the sixth member of the band or whatever as far as like all right Here's this is us going into the studio, all with the same goal, and all of us are not going to stop until we get there. And
0: one other record I wanted to ask you about that I think is phenomenal, but I can imagine it would be like extremely challenging too. Is the Case Lang Veers record? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, you know, I th- I think it's an incredible record, Uh, but I can't imagine how daunting that would be. Just like working with. Like some pretty strong personalities and some very strong, like artists in their own right, like how that all came together and just what the experience was like. And
1: yeah, that one, man, that was a, that felt Herculean to finish that and to feel good about it. There were just, yeah, yeah. You know, from, from when the idea was born to the end, there were just so many ways it, it could have very easily gone wrong. It seems Um, like that. You know, I mean, there is three different, very different, very unique, very strong-willed, opinionated, amazing songwriter women singers. Yeah. Um. And but there was this just sort of triangulation of of admiration between all of them. I had whose idea was it? Well, I think it was Katie's idea. But so I oh. I was working on a record with Nico, and Nico was in town, and Katie was living here. She still has a place here, but she's mostly with her girlfriend wife i can't remember if they got married yet but um in canada so uh, something i think one of the local weeklies knew nico was in town and had this idea for nico to interview katie and so so i went with nico to that i didn't stay there but um met katie there laura so for people that don't know i guess i don't think we've we've stated it all, who who was on this record, but it was Katie Lang, Nico Case, and Laura Veers. Laura had met Katie recently at a benefit concert that they all did, okay. and they they seemed to have a co-admiration thing going on. And I think Katie was just looking for, you know, she'd been at this longer than everyone else. It's probably, for, for all of us, she was the one maybe with the biggest challenge of not making a record that she's made before. Like, how do you, you know, in your mid-50s or whatever age she was um, and that deep into a career, how do you challenge yourself and how do you offer something new to your audience and all those things? Um, Katie realized that she loved what Nico does and she loved what Laura does and that what they did is so different than what Katie did that there would just be no way... To come out of that experience and not like have some kind of new perspective and have it bring something uh-huh. something new out of your own artistry so since i knew all of them and katie and i had at that point hung out a bit and really got along it just made sense that because i was sort of a common denominator to, be, to make the record with me uh i mean i say it makes sense i mean it was their their choice but i but and i was thrilled <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, yeah. rather than like the three of them who didn't know each other very well and had never worked together before, also suddenly working with somebody that hadn't worked with them before, like that just might have been one too many um, tricky things because I, you know, right. I, 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 had, I had a pretty good idea of like how to get the best out of Laura and I'd worked with Nico and had a good understanding of her artistry and had long admired KD but never really worked with her before um so i mean it was a difficult record to make the writing was tricky the three of them would get together and bring in little uh-huh. song bits and you know the way laura writes a song like the way the words are supposed to be sung just does not sound right when kd sings it for example um uh-huh. and same with nico like they all they all gravitate towards you know like for kd it's usually like it. there were too many syllables in each line like (laughs) she wants to like be able to take a sound and a word and draw it out and really be expressive with it and you know Laura likes to like more rhythmic melodies and she Mm -hmm. she doesn't really draw notes out and you know Nico has her totally own phrasing and sense of melody and um and they all write very differently their words that that they write so there was there was there were a lot of hurdles in the writing process, and it wasn't always pretty and they didn't all always get along didn't always agree and There were times that oh, it yeah. felt like the thing could come off the rails i mean there were a few close calls where it literally just almost got cancelled. It held on barely, and <laughs> you know, we had a blast, and it turned out great. I think they were all really proud of it and really happy with it
0: it really yeah, it really feels like a a cohesive project it doesn't feel like. Oh, here's a Laura Veirs song that they're singing. I mean, it sort of is, I guess, in a like you can spot, sort of like, oh, that must be a, or that's a Katie Lang song, or that's a Laura Veirs song. But, but there's something about that project which it it is very cohesive. It's like they were a band.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, they they fought for that. They worked really hard to get there. It it didn't just naturally happen. And there was a okay. lot of writing and a lot of like switching. Like at the last minute, who's going to sing this song? You know, and Katie maybe being like, ah, you know what? I just can't find comfort zone with this song. But I've been thinking about that other one, and I really love singing it. Like, can I have that one? You know, and sometimes that would lead to like, well, God, but Nico sounded so great singing it. Why don't, how about she'll take a verse, and then you'll take a verse. And it was a lot of that kind of stuff of just like trying to get these three very different (laughs) <laughs> shapes into the same <laughs> little spot um how, how involved in that were you i was really involved in that record um okay you know honestly like from from the beginning like from the first conversation to the end um they you know they they all put a lot of trust in me and i got to pick the band and yeah, you know, there was a ton of preparation but the record itself was made pretty quickly i think we oh, had really we had well you know in the grand scheme of things. I think we had the band for four days and then, yeah. you know, there was a day of string overdubs and um, we had a few days. You play, you
0: play drums on it, right?
1: No, I didn't. No, I... Um, oh, you don't? Okay. No, Glenn Cochi from Wilco oh, played okay. on that. Uh, so, you know, that was a whole other thing was like picking musicians that could, you know, that could maybe play in a way that KD was going to be psyched about that maybe felt like there was some familiar territory for her but that also could kind of improvise and be weird and play kind of more outside where that was called mm-hmm. for i mean i wanted to make sure that we didn't make a kind of middle of the road record you know um yeah i just don't the world didn't need like just a oh that's nice i think that's a nice record you know <laughs> like
0: yeah do you think they all walked away from it feeling like it was successful
1: i do yeah i mean i oh, cool they've they've all said as much it, yeah. And, um, there was, there was, there were murmurings about maybe doing a second one, but I think, I don't think it's going to happen. It was, just, right. it it was a lot of work. Um, I think also just a lot of emotional work for them. And I think they're like, Hey, look, we did it. We, we fucking crushed <laughs> that thing. <laughs> let's, you know, yeah, let's, yeah, let's not, let's not mess with it. Oh, and there's so many, you know, they all just like to keep challenging themselves and trying new things. So. Yeah, I don't think that's going to, I don't think there'll be a part two, but who knows?
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's what they said about Robert Plant and Alison Krauss, and they've done another one. Oh, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to ask you about what your plans are in the future, but obviously you have no idea right now.
1: (laughs) I really don't. Yeah, I've had some records that, you know, got postponed and then rescheduled and then postponed again and then rescheduled and postponed again because of... I've
0: reached the point where, where the rescheduling is no longer happening. Exactly.
1: No, same. It's like, all right, guys, let's just stop trying until we have more clarity.
0: There was all kinds of touring stuff that was like, we're not going to do it in May. We'll do it in August or September. And then that went away. And then now we're not even talking about 2021. Right. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah and and as far as the studio goes like d- do you continue to like expand and like are you still a bit of a gear f- like you're a bit of a gear slut i got to say like you've got some pretty amazing <laughs> stuff there uh is that something that you continue to expand on and like are have interest or have you sort of hit a wall where you're just like you know what i got everything i need
1: i've definitely i've hit a wall i mean um a i just have a lot of stuff and then b I, you know just financially i haven't been able to you know, to be as as loose about that. I mean there was there was a time where I had enough records kind of back to back with good budgets and stuff, and there'd be a little extra money and i'd I'd just think like, well, what would be like a useful, cool new tool, you know, either something I really felt like I needed or just something that might be an inspiring new color to have at this point, I'm feeling a little bit over it. I'm like because I'm also the you know irony is I'm somebody who loves limitations, and I don't always like having too many options and that's just right. more of a general comment about the creative process i think if you don't give yourself some limitations and make some decisions early on like you're just everyone's paralyzed by option anxiety <laughs> so um i'm you know i'm just really trying to figure out like again taking stock of this this point in my life like what gear i'm excited about taking gear that hasn't gotten used much kind of using it again. And some of it I'm discovering like, oh yeah, this thing's amazing. I need to kind of put this into heavy rotation or, you know what, I just don't need this. So I'm going to sell it, which is great too, because with less work happening right now, I I need the money. So yeah, I mean, I'll never reach a point where I never buy anything again, but it's slowed down dramatically. Basically at this Mm -hmm. point, you know, I reached the point too, where I thought, the only piece of gear I can really upgrade and that's going to make a real difference in my day-to-day record making is the space. Like a better sounding yeah. control room, a better sounding live room, you know, a reverb chamber, just like things like that. So that's basically my new gear that I'm excited about is just having right, the right, best sounding right, yeah. space I've ever had.
0: One last thing I just wanted to ask you about that I noticed, I can't remember if I saw it on your website or not. Do you really have Richard Manuel's piano?
1: Yeah, well... I, I do, but it came... So, Ian McClagan, who played with The Faces... Faces. Yeah. Um, lived in Austin forever. Amazing piano yeah. player. Uh, he So, this was his piano that he had gotten from Richard Manuel, who supposedly <laughs> had gotten it from Keith Moon and traded drugs for it or something. And it lived at their <laughs> Shangri-La studio way back when. Um, and amazing. then Ian was a friend of mine, and when he died through um, a mutual friend that was really close with Ian's family. Uh, my friend was kind of helping him figure out, you know, how to sell the gear and where it should go and all that stuff. And he called me and and just told me about a couple things I might be interested in. And yeah, so I already had like a, a nice sounding, like really pretty sounding piano, but I wanted to have something that's more of a beater that just has tons of character and, you know, a little more kind of that barroom feel and that's what the piano i got from ian is it's a short well it's not the shortest spinet but it's kind of like a medium size spinet and it's old and it's just beat to hell and like all the keys are like painted different colors and there's stickers on the side of it and it's just scratched up and who knows you know (laughs) the stories that thing could tell but it's exactly what i needed for my my you know my kind of other piano
0: well, thanks, man. I, I I don't want to take up any more of your time. I we've talked for a long time, and so much appreciate the the
1: the time and oh, uh, likewise all this information. It's this is it's fascinating. It's been great. The time the time flew by. Feels You're like good. we could we could probably just go for hours, but we'll spare we could we'll spare people. We could. There's <laughs> there's always the future. We can do around two.
0: Okay. Well, thanks so much, man. Cool. likewise.
1: Yeah. Let's stay in touch. All right. All right take care. You, you bet. All right, bye see ya.
0: bye. Folks, that was my conversation with Tucker Martin. Hope you enjoyed it. I had a blast speaking with him. We will see you in another couple of weeks for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. We'll see you then. Over and out. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research. And we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers.